to be a part of a... (laughs) Family? (laughs) It is fun to be a part of a family where we can watch our kids grow right before our very eyes. And my son Lucas is obviously growing very quickly. uh, And uh, his, uh, apparently his bravery is growing as well. (laughs) But at our church, we believe that not only are we a spiritual family together, but that God is inviting us to grow. We are ready to grow as a faith community. And so we are doing a short three-part series that we're calling Ready to Grow. And this is week number two, where we are looking at a story in the life of Jesus about how his life can be an example and a model, not only of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us, but the kind of relationship that he wants us to have with those who are far from God, those who are lost and who are hurting in the world. We've been talking about how church growth isn't about numbers. It's not about size. It's about depth, and it's about width. It's about growing deeper in Christ so that we can go further in Christ's mission in the world. And as we've been walking what we call the vitality pathway this last year, we've been challenging ourselves to to take a look at what does it mean to be both healthy and missional? What does it mean to pursue the things of Christ in our own personal lives so that we're experiencing his healing and his wholeness in, in our lives personally? It requires each of us to be willing to allow him to grow us as disciples of Jesus. But we're also asking, what does it take for us to be missional, to to grow outward from ourselves, to, to be an example to the world of the light and the love of Jesus that gives itself away on behalf of those who need good news in their lives? And so as we're preparing to launch this new ministry year, and we're going to be focusing a lot this year on the vitality pathway on discipleship, and what does it mean to truly be a disciple, and how do we as human beings grow in the Spirit of God, we're going to be talking about how important it is that we are following the mission and the example of Jesus and being led by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you were with us last week, we learned from this story of John chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit is the gift that Jesus came to give everyone. And it's the presence of the Spirit within us that empowers us, that bubbles up to overflowing, that becomes that true spring of water that quenches the true spiritual thirst in our life. And today we're going to continue the story as we see Jesus' disciples returning to him because they were sent off to get food. And last week we talked about spiritual thirst, and today we get to talk a little bit about spiritual hunger and the food that Jesus has for his own soul. So if you want to turn with me to chapter 4 of John, we're going to be picking up the story of Jesus and the woman at the well at verse 27. Where it says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Now, if you were here last week or you know the background of this story, it wasn't only surprising that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along all that well, but it was surprising that he was talking to a Samaritan woman because as a rabbi, a Jewish single man, teacher of the law, he would not be expected to engage in conversation with a woman in public at the well. Now, scholars in, this, in their commentaries, as they look at this passage, say not only should we surprise that Jesus was willing to step across those cultural boundaries to actually engage a woman in conversation, much less a Samaritan woman, but we should be even more surprised that he'd be willing to talk about theological things with her. 
Because as a, a rabbi, it was, a, it was assumed that you didn't spend time teaching women the, the theological truths of God or teaching them the law. It was kind of a, a, a waste of time. In fact, it was kind of profaning the sacred by allowing a woman into that inner circle of, of teaching and, and religious life. And so Jesus is blowing people's minds as he's stepping out of the preconceived notions of what religiosity is really all about. And he's revealing to us that the power of God and the love of God that has come into the world for those who are far from God totally transforms our perspective on what it is that we are really being called and asked to do in mission for God. So, where was I? (laughs) Surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They were too afraid, apparently. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Surely you must be hungry, right? But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." This is a, again, it's a rich passage and there's so many layers to what's going on here. I don't know that we'll have time to to look at every detail and aspect, but there's a few things that I want to be able to focus on this morning as we look at this conversation that Jesus gets into with his disciples. It's a very similar kind of conversation to the one he just had with the woman at the well, where where they come with their earthly perspectives and, and they're not sure what Jesus is really talking about. There's a level of confusion, but he's using that disorientation to lead them to a whole new way of thinking in their lives. He's using their disorientation from their confusion and wondering what Jesus is doing to reorient them to the kingdom mindset that Jesus is wanting them to have. The disciples had left to get food and they come back and they see him talking with this Samaritan woman and they're very confused and they're probably a little bit perplexed and what are other people going to think and who's seeing this happening and boy, we're supposed to be his followers and, and what is he doing? And of course, they're thinking about all the prohibitions and the don'ts of the, of the religious law and, and how that's going to be perceived and how Jesus is going to come across to the leaders who we already know he was in tension with. And they were investigating him like they were John the Baptist, which is why he left Jerusalem to go through Samaria to get to Galilee anyway. But Jesus disregards the customs and the traditions and the, the irreligiosity of this woman, and he brings to her good news. 
You see, a sign of discipleship we see in the story here is that our testimony becomes a part of the good news to other people. We see this woman responding by, by leaving her jar and, and running to go tell her neighbors, man, you got to come and meet this guy because I'm not sure if he's the Christ, but if anybody could be, it would be him. you got to come and see. And this invitation to come and see Jesus is one that's repeated over and over again in the Gospel of John. And that some scholars suggest that the potential converts that receive this invitation to come and see don't need more information about who Jesus is. They need to come and experience him for, himself, for themselves. And if they can just come and see Jesus, if they can come and meet Jesus, then they will be convinced that the words that he brings are true, and that maybe, just maybe, he is the Messiah he claims to be. In her absence, the disciples urged Jesus to eat. Have something to eat. You've got to be hungry. Eat. Come on. We all love to eat, right? I mean, food is one of those core sustenance issues in our life. We have to eat to survive, and I don't know about you, but when I start to feel those hunger pangs in my life, in my stomach, and I sort of think, oh, it's been so long since I ate, I need to eat. In fact, we have a phrase in our culture, right? I'm starving. Now, in our culture, nothing is probably further from the truth. Very few of us are actually starving. But we have this, this sense in our psychology, in our emotional world, when we feel that pain of hunger, we know we need to eat and we want to go get some food so that we can feed our bodies because we're feeling weak and uh, we need sustenance. And Jesus says to his disciples, I have food to eat about which you know nothing. What is he talking about? Did somebody bring him food to eat? Did this woman have, you know... Uh, uh, Krispy Kremes that she brought to the well with her? You know, what, what's going on? And so he goes to, to take this disorientation. He says, no, you see, just like hunger is a pain that reminds us that we need to feed our bodies, there is a spiritual hunger that we experience that, that might feel like a pain that reminds us that we also need to feed our souls. And when we go too long without having our souls fed, we begin to experience a sense of dissatisfaction with life in this world. In fact, if you go too long without being spiritually fed, you're going to feel more and more like this world is out to get you. You're going to feel like we talked about two weeks ago when he looked at the crowds and, and said they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's because we have a hunger that we were designed to be met by the Spirit of God in our lives. But if we go too long without being fed in the way that it was intended, we begin to experience dissatisfaction and dislocation in our lives and in this world. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, this one is a tough one for us. Even though we are very action-oriented in America and we like results and we're good at checking things off the list, when we approach religious life, we often think that we come to church to sit in a pew and be fed. And that if we want to feed our souls, we want somebody to pour into us, to feed us what we need. But Jesus is saying the opposite is true. If you really want to feed your soul, if you really want the Spirit of God to pour into your life, you need to go out and do something in the name of God. And in the process of acting in mission, God will fill you with his Spirit and empower you to do that which he's calling you to do. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of my Father. And in doing that will, my soul gets fed. 
I am filled to overflowing because I know that I am fulfilling the mission and the plan that God has for my life. Ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that too many of us in American Christianity are simply malnourished, anemic Christians because we spend too much time feeding at the buffet table of church and not enough time out in the world doing the mission of God so that God can pour his spirit into us to fill us to overflowing. But if we can just take those small steps away from the bar and get out there into the world... It might cost us a few of our religious calories, but man, the kind of nourishment God will give us will be so much greater and so much more satisfying. Obeying the Father is Jesus' most deeply satisfying task in life. Throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see over and over again that the Father has given the Son work to do. And his mission is to see it to completion. In the final prayer that Jesus prays with his disciples in John 17, in the upper room, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, Father. And if you remember, when he's on the cross and he's just about to give up his life, he exclaims, it is finished. And what we know upon reflection is that he's not merely talking about the end of his earthly human life. He's talking about the work that God had given him to do. You see, when we too make the will of God in our lives the top priority, we discover with Jesus that there is real spiritual food that can bring a level of depth to meaning and purpose and satisfaction that we can never discover in any other way. And that same food is available to you and to me this morning. It's available to everybody who would seek to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't you have a saying, Jesus said? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Now, scholars say there's really no uh, historical precedent for this phrase. So they're assuming it must be some local colloquialism that was common in the area of Galilee uh, for local farmers. But, but if you think about it, how long does it take to create a harvest? It, 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 it's more than four months. So if you think about the timing of saying, looking at the field and the weather and saying it's still four months to the harvest, Jesus is saying all of the prep work has been done. All of the planting has been done. The seeds are in the ground. The the rains have come. The crop is growing. And we can look out at the fields and we can see that it's going to be a bumper crop this year. But in that time of year, the farmer kind of sits back and he says, well, there's not much I can do, but just let it grow to maturity. When it comes ripe, then the harvest season will come. And, and, and so he's challenging his disciples to say, now is the not, not the time to sit back on your laurels and appreciate all the seeds that have been planted and the, and the good work that's been done. We might miss the reality that the harvest is actually ripe and it's time to get out into the field and start bringing in the harvest. Jesus says the time of harvest is not in the future. The the fields are ripe now. Jesus is in the world now. God has invaded the world and planted the seed of his word through his son, Jesus Christ, and it's already beginning to bear fruit. In fact, in just a few minutes, a bunch of Samaritan people are going to be coming back with this woman to hear the good news of Jesus. Disciples, are you ready? When they show up, are you going to receive them? Are you going to welcome them? Will you talk to them? Or are you going to snub your nose at them because they're Samaritans and we're Jews and we don't really interact? And what are these people doing here? And, and is God really going to invite them into the family as well? 
This is the reality we see being lived out in the story with Jesus and the woman, that God's heart is for all those who are far from him, regardless of their religious background or their current beliefs. Jesus has planted the seed of hope in this woman's life, and even now the Samaritan neighbors are hearing and responding to her testimony of this good news. And Jesus said, it's not because of anything that his disciples have done. It's because of what God has done to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus. That's what he goes on to say in verse 37. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. In farming, as in many other labors, significant work precedes a harvest. My brother-in-law is a farmer, and, and early spring, I mean, he's watching the weather. He's saying, when can I get out there into the fields when they dry up enough that I can get the tractor so I can get the seeds in the ground? Because I have to get the seeds in the ground in order to get a long growing period. And all of that prep work that goes into getting a harvest or a crop ready for, for planting is just as much work, if not more, than sometimes the harvest itself. Sometimes those who do the preparatory work are not the same as those who bring in the harvest. Jesus could be referring here to the community of God's people historically, the, the Israelites who have maybe prepared uh, you know, the culture for this season. He could be referring to John the Baptist who had kind of laid the way for Jesus' ministry. Or, or they say he could even be talking about himself and that Jesus has done the work needed. But the point, they say, of this passage of Jesus, one reaps and the other sows, is that Christian mission is always done in terms of what God has previously done before we showed up. Because otherwise, you know what? We take the credit, right? Oh, look at what we did. You know, how many souls do you have on your spiritual gun belt? We're winning souls for Jesus, and look how great we are. Ah, that's not what Jesus is saying it's about. God has done the work. God has planted the seeds. God has a, a harvest field ready to be harvested. But we have to be willing to go into the harvest and be laborers in the field and bring it in. And we can't even claim credit for it. It's all about what God has been doing in advance of our efforts. Now, this morning, I'd like to suggest there are two aspects about this that can give us hope, but also will be a little bit of a challenge. First of all, Christian labor is never a solitary effort separated from the labor of others who have gone before in previous generations. We are reaping the benefits at Faith Covenant Church of decades and decades of faithful men and women who have lived generously and sacrificially to advance the kingdom of God in the Pacific Northwest. And we we went through a, a sermon series this last winter where we went back and told the story of faith about our forebears who came to this, this mission field when it wasn't even a state. And we are reaping the benefits of the the labor of those who have gone before, who have built a foundation of faithful people who are sacrificing generously for the mission of God. We need to learn from our past and to value our history and to understand that, that we stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants who have prepared us for this time to be able to do God's work in our season and in our age. In fact, part of the Vitality Pathway encourages us to take the time to mine our story for for those experiences, for those unique saints who have blessed the ministries of Faith Covenant Church and to use them as inspiration to keep us going forward in the future. At Faith Covenant Church, we value our history and we learn from our history to move us forward into the future. Yet, 
We also have to see in this passage here as well that traditions can become part of the problem as well. Traditions in our life can become a barrier to the the new work that God wants to do in our lives. Whether it's the traditions of the Samaritan woman and the ways that they worship God in Samaria, or the traditions of the disciples themselves and their expectations about how they should be interacting with Samaritans and with women and people who are far from God, both question Jesus' actions in this story. You see, Christian labor can never be separated, Jesus is telling the woman and these disciples, from the presence and the power of God at work in our lives. As Christians, we're called to go where God is leading us, where he's already done the prep work so that we can reap the harvest that he wants us to reap. See, Jesus in this story has been announcing that there's a a new relationship with God that's available. There's a, a new immediacy in our experience of God because of the presence of his spirit. There's a whole new spirituality that becomes part of the life that we live together. And the Bible teaches us clearly that God himself is always the source of growth for the church. Our growth comes from walking in step with the Spirit of God, doing the will of Jesus' Father. We, like Jesus, have to go deeper in our relationship with God in order to be truly empowered to go further in our work for God. The two go hand in hand. Sometimes Jesus is telling his disciples and us that when traditions get in the way of our understanding of what God is calling us to do, we have to focus more on the Spirit and respond to the Spirit over our traditions. We must always be asking ourselves, are Jesus' work and his mission the true priority and focus of our life, individually as his followers and collectively as his church? When we went on the Navigate training weekend to prepare for the Vitality Pathway, there were four of us who went, and we came back and were able to share a little bit about uh, our experience with you. But one of the things they shared with us when we were that really stuck with me is they said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Isn't that good? Tradition The legacy and the history and the story and what's been handed on is the living faith of the dead. Those forebears who have gone before us, who have handed us a legacy and a foundation to build on and to live on. We want to honor that. We want to celebrate that and to ask ourselves, how can we too live like they did in our day, in our time? But if we focus on our traditions so much that we begin to worship the traditions themselves... And they become an obstacle to being able to follow responsively to the will of God and the movement of the Spirit in our lives, then it becomes the dead faith of the living. That's why I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 7 through 9 said, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, a shared purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. It's not about our traditions. It's all about Jesus and the mission that he's given us to share his love with those who don't know it yet. What traditions or forms or ritual practices do we defend to the death and perhaps unexpectedly find ourselves in opposition to God. And if we find ourselves in such a position, are we willing to make the will of God for our lives and our church the real priority? Now, let me just make one more caveat here. This is not just a generational issue. 
I'm not just talking about young and old. I'm talking about us as human beings and how do we create traditions in our lives that become the architecture out of which we hold on to meaning and value and a sense of purpose. Maybe your traditions are surrounding sporting events and watching sports on TV. We have a lot of traditions around sports, don't we? Maybe your, some of your traditions are around uh, church events and church life becomes a part of that for you, but, but maybe it's more about your traditions of vacation and recreation and spending time away, resting. Maybe those have become traditions that, that bring value to you that might become in opposition to something God might want to do in your life, that those might become barriers or obstacles to. In Christ, all of our human traditions must be held up to the light of the gospel and to the will of God in our lives. This was Jesus' example. This was his challenge to his disciples back in the day. And if we want to become truly healthy and missional as a church in our time, we must go deeper in Christ and further in mission by making God's will for you and for me our top priority. Now, while it may seem like this is an act of sacrifice on our part because we have to let go of some things that maybe we cherish and that we love and that we think are the best, what we discover is that in making the will of God our top priority, we discover a deeper spiritual food that satisfies us in a way that maybe we didn't even expect. When we worship God in spirit and in truth, We have access to the true source of growth in us and in our church. And that growth is not just about numbers. It's about growing in the spirit of God to become mature disciples of Jesus whose true priority is like Jesus, doing the will of our Father in heaven. If we grow, the church grows. It's as simple as that. If we grow, the church grows. So many problems in the church not growing today are simply because those who are sitting in the churches are no longer growing themselves. And so the only church growth strategy that the Bible gives us is that we need to go deeper in our own relationship with Christ first, and as a result, growth will happen. We won't be able to help but tell people the amazing things that God is doing in my life. And they're going to be attracted to that because that's good news. And they're going to say, you got to come and meet this guy, Jesus, because he told me everything I've ever done. He knows all about me, and he didn't shun me. He didn't reject me. In fact, he said, I'd give you living water if you just would have asked. Men and women, the testimony that we have is the very good news that everyone needs to hear. But if we're not growing, we don't have anything to share. And so we need to have that fresh revolution in our own hearts of the Spirit of God moving us to make God the priority. How many of you today, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can if you want to. How many of you today are hungry for a fresh revolution of the Spirit of God in your heart? How many need God to come in and move you like he did that first time when you fell in love with Jesus? That that time when you were just so amazed and excited when you said, oh my goodness, God is real. And Jesus is alive. And he has forgiven me for all of the, you know what, in my life. And I'm lighter and I'm happier and I'm excited and it doesn't matter how bad things are or what I've done because, oh my goodness, the grace of God has filled me to overflowing. And you gotta go tell somebody. You gotta share it with somebody. In fact, maybe that's what led you to get involved with church in the first place. I wanna go where other people have that same joy and excitement. And then maybe over time, 
It begins to wane and you begin to feel like you're getting into the ritual of church and the architecture of church and the, the duties and the, the maybe we just need a fresh wind of the Spirit to blow through not just this place, but this place. See, Jesus comes to you and to me like the woman at the well and like his disciples and said, if only you know that there's a deeper food that will feed your soul, you would have asked and I would have given it. And that same Jesus is here with us through the Holy Spirit right now. And we're going to have an opportunity to come to the feast that he has prepared for us that we call communion. It is the time when we gather around the table of those followers of Jesus like his early disciples acknowledging that he is our Lord and our Savior. That because of his sacrifice for us, because of his broken body and his shed blood, our priorities in life can never be the same again. How can we ever have anything that becomes more important than the will of God in our lives as we follow Jesus? I want to invite our worship team to come and join me on the platform. As we prepare to move into our time of communion, I just want to invite us to take a few minutes and reflect. What is the Holy Spirit wanting you to change in your priorities in your life today? Maybe just one thing. Is there one thing that's become a, a tradition or a habit or a routine in your life that is, that is blocking the ability of the Holy Spirit to move in your life today? What's one thing that maybe you can bring to Jesus in this time of communion and invite him to take it from you? Maybe it's an area of your work or your family life. Or maybe it's a, a habit that uh, is gone unnoticed by anybody else around you. God is here and he wants to feed your soul in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. We're going to do communion by intinction today, which means you simply come forward to receive communion and you tear off a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and you, you take the elements together. And so this is a time of interaction. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of worship. It's a time of prayer. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit moves powerfully in this moment, in your life and in my life. I pray that we experience a revolution of the soul because we're feeding on the food that Jesus has given us to eat. Will our servers please come? Let's continue to work.